This episode is brought to you by Sight Sound, a unique festival combining audio, visual installations, and new music to celebrate and imagine the past, present, and future of Philadelphia's Rail Park. Over the first three weeks of October, three core installations will bring this shared urban space to life, along with community workshops, panels, tours, and live performances. We hope you join us October 5th through the 19th. And for more, you can visit sitesoundphl.org. Presented by Mural Arts Philadelphia and a team of nonprofit partners. Do you think that the word critic has a negative connotation to it? It does for some people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole idea of criticism for some people, you know, they question who's this guy that he can, like, you know, pontificate about movies or books or whatever. And over the years, putting myself out there in print and then online every week, the people that tend to respond to that in email form or phone call form usually have something negative to say. And so, <laughs> so I got a lot of flack from people, like questioning my judgment, my take on a film or whatever. So you just have to sort of gird yourself for that and have some sense of confidence about your own opinions and be able to articulate them in a way that people will get. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Stephen Ray, a writer who's built his career around his love for great movies. Stephen served a 24-year stint as a film critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer. As a critic, he sat down with celebrities from Bill Murray to Meryl Streep, and he's also curated and published several photography books depicting Hollywood stars doing everyday things like riding bikes, drinking coffee, reading books. Because Stephen, like many of us, adores the simple pleasures in life, like drinking a good cup of coffee. How Stephen Ray turned his love for the simple things into a full-blown career is now on Philly Who. Stephen Ray had no idea he'd be a nationally renowned film critic when he was a kid. In fact, he wanted to be a poet. But the irony is, when Stephen was growing up, his life was kind of like a movie. He grew up in a posh hotel nestled into a Manhattan skyscraper, and he didn't have a backyard. Instead, he had Central Park. If you've ever read the Eloise books, you've already got a glimpse of Stephen's childhood. Well, I grew up in the Stanhope Hotel, which is a pretty posh hotel at the time. My father was the manager of the hotel, right across from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So that was my childhood until my parents divorced when I was 11 or 12. So it was sort of like um, Eloise. It was, um, I had the run of the place. The doormen and elevator men had to be nice to me because I was their boss's son. But it was pretty great too. Yeah. Central Park was my backyard. When my parents split up and we moved still on 81st Street, but down to 81st and 1st Avenues, which was sort of the Yorkville neighborhood, smaller apartment. My mother was cooking in the very small, you know, New York apartment kitchen after school on weekends. I started riding a bike pretty early on and would ride through the park and on weekends ride down 2nd Avenue all the way to the tip of Manhattan. The boathouse in Central Park, you know, which now has a pretty fancy restaurant in it. At the time, it was just a cafe where you'd go up to the counter and order coffee in a paper cup. And I'd go there after school, especially in the wintertime, and then all through high school. 
and get a cup of coffee in a Milky Way bar and just kind of mope around in the park and yeah. stuff like that. Gotta just wait for school <laughs> to start tomorrow, right? right <laughs> I remember right. those days. Now, you studied English and creative writing at San Francisco State. Mm-hmm. At that point when you were studying in school, did you intend to get into pop culture? No, no, I intended to be a poet. I had an incredible mentor at my high school in New York. I went to Stuyvesant and Jesse Lowenthal, who is a a gentleman who must have been in his 60s when he was teaching English at Stuyvesant. When I was there, took me under his wing because I had been writing poetry and there was a alternative paper called The Flea that a friend of mine started. It was called The Flea because the principal of Stuyvesant was Leonard Fleetner. <laughs> so I was the poetry editor of The Flea and um, my teacher, Jesse Lowenthal, saw some of my poems and so he had me come in before classes started every day. Not every day, but maybe once a week. And I'd show him what I'd been writing and he was super encouraging. And he actually even um, called my parents down to meet with them. And they thought this was something like, "Uh oh, I've really done it now. I'm gonna get kicked out of the school. And it, in fact, he wanted to tell them that I had, I don't know, talent or you know, yeah. some ability writing poetry. So my plan was all to be a poet. Then I went to the writer's workshop at the University of Iowa in the poetry program. And it was midway through that, that I realized that the way that most poets were able to support themselves was to become a teacher in another creative writing program in another college or university. And at that point, I felt like I didn't have it in me to be a teacher. And then a friend of mine who worked for Island Records in LA offered me a job being their editorial writer, writing the press releases, artist bios and things like that. And so I left the University of Iowa uh, midway through my MFA program and went to work at Island Records so you, you bailed on the master's? Yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, was well, that a hard decision? It wasn't at the time, and I haven't regretted it too much. Although when I did start teaching film studies at Drexel five or 10 years ago as an adjunct and thought about maybe trying to, there was an opening and applying for an opening there as an assistant professor, I realized that all I had was my BA. I didn't have an MFA. Right. And they were looking for at least an, a master's, if not a PhD. Right. So you go out to LA to work for a record company. Did that meet your expectations of living in LA and, and working for a record company? Like that sounds, I mean, I think of LA and it's, you know, the glam, it's pop culture. Is that what it was like living out there? I don't know about the glam, but I, I loved it because I was, in addition to being like a movie fanatic from my childhood years, I was also hugely into music and Island Records at the time had like Nick Drake, Bob Marley, Toots and the Maytals. They had a distribution deal with Michael Nesmith from the Monkees, but his solo stuff was really beautiful. And uh, I got to meet Michael Nesmith and hang out with him a little bit. Bruce Coburn, the Canadian artist. So it was a thrill meeting these musicians, these singer songwriters and just working with people. Island Records was established by Chris Blackwell, who's English. So there were a lot of Brits working for the company in LA. And I mean, it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I was writing stuff that would be go to record stores, um, merchandising information, artist bios that other journalists would read when they were, you know, reviewing a record, little ad blurbs and stuff like that. I did get to write the liner notes for a couple of albums, which was a lot of fun. But no, I was happy doing that. And then Island went through sort of tumultuous it just wasn't a well-run company. And so it was sold to, I think the first time it was sold, it was sold to Polygram. I'm not sure about that. So the independent label was broken up. And so pretty much everyone there lost their job. And I was young enough and didn't have family or anything. So I was. I, it didn't 
traumatized me. And from there, I started writing freelance. I, you know, I met some editors and some other writers. And so I started just freelance pop culture writing um, for different magazines in, and newspapers in LA. Then I was writing for the Herald Examiner, which was the afternoon daily paper in LA, which is, was a Hearst paper and went under. But it was a really cool place. And we were in the old, the original building that was d- downtown that was designed by the same architect who did the Hearst Castle. And it was a really incredible place. It's still there and they use it for movies a lot. And I had a weekly column called Simple Pleasures, which was about cool, cheap things to do in LA. Everything from finding the best donut shops to uh, free movie screenings. You know, I was relatively successful doing freelance. And then I got a job offer to be the pop arts editor for We Magazine, which was a spinoff of, it was under the Hefner Playboy empire. And I actually worked in the Playboy building on Sunset Strip and um, got to assign stories to writers, to, to interview actors or musicians. I, I wrote copy about things I really thought was cool. I also had to write some of the copy for the centerfolds, for the spreads, for the, which was pretty hysterical because We Magazine was licensed from Louis Magazine, which was a French men's magazine that Hefner bought the rights to use their photographs and editorial content if they wanted. So we'd be presented with these um, pictorials of nude models, but you were given carte blanche to make up their names, their backstory, anything you wanted. So I was um, creating these little sort of short stories about these women who I had never met. And, you know, it's pretty bizarre. <laughs> that, that is one of the most bizarre forms of creative writing I think I've ever heard of. That was a fun, if somewhat weird job and yeah. probably not very PC. Right. Being out in L.A. and, and interviewing celebrities, mm-hmm. you know, either in film or, or in music, which you said you also like, were you nervous at first? Did it take any time to get used to speaking to people who were famous? At first it did, although I think working at Island helped me a little bit because I got to interview like Toots Hibbert from Toots and the Maytals and Michael Nesmith and people like that. And so it was in a working context. And so the awe that you have for these artists quickly sort of went, disappeared as you started relating to them. I had a really cool experience with Michael Nesmith where my boss, the head of publicity at Island Records, Jeff Walker, they had just signed this deal with Nesmith to distribute his label, Pacific Arts. And so Jeff and I went up there to meet with Nesmith and to talk to him and see you know, what the schedule was of the albums he was planning to release. And it was right before Christmas time, and we got to stay at his house in Carmel. And um, It's a Wonderful Life was on television that night. I had never seen it. And so it was the first time I got to see this magic, super important movie in the presence of this artist who is a monkey. That was an experience I've remembered ever since. What was it about film that you fell in love with? The escapism of it, the complete, you're able to lose yourself in a story a romance, a screwball comedy, time traveling, you know, everything. And I think growing up in Manhattan at the time, there were movie theaters everywhere. There weren't the stacked multiplexes that there are now, but there were single screen theaters like the Translux on 85th Street, the Lowe's and RKO cinemas on 86th Street. And so I pretty much spent every weekend at the movies, you know, when I was old enough to go out by myself. And um, Gene Roberts, who was the editor, was trying to make the Inquirer 
which wasn't the esteemed newspaper that it became, you know, winning dozens of Pulitzer Prizes. It was considered in the shadow of the Bulletin. But when the Bulletin closed, they went on a hiring spree. And so I came out here for an interview and got the job. And so I've been here since 82. Had you really ever been to Philadelphia before coming here to interview for the Inquirer? Once when I was a kid in a real kind of traumatic experience. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, do you want to share that? (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure. My father was in the hotel business, as as I said, and sort of his career hit a peak and then he had, um, I guess you'd say a nervous breakdown. And so his career sort of went downhill. And at the beginning of that downhill slope, he got a job as the general manager at what was called the Adelphia Hotel, which is, uh, the building is still there now. It's the Adelphia Apartments and it's at 13th and Chestnut. My parents had divorced. You know, we were meant to see him every Sunday. And when he moved down here to Philadelphia, we didn't see him very often, but there was one summer weekend where my brother and I were put on the Greyhound bus and sent to Philadelphia and to hang out with my father. Bus driver driving from New York to Philadelphia somehow got lost in the middle of New Jersey. And we were like hours and hours late. And I was like maybe 12 years old or something and taking care of my younger brother. And so like I was all distraught and My father was distraught because the bus never showed up or did finally show up. And that just kicked off like a not great weekend. The only pleasant memory I have of that first visit was that there's a stretch of Fairmount Park that's just off of Kelly Drive. So there's a grassy stretch there. And I remember my father taking us there to play catch. And so the first time I saw that after I moved here to Philadelphia, I saw that space. I thought, oh brought back a, a positive memory. Yeah, a positive memory. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, I, was, I don't know. What was Philadelphia like in the early 80s? What was the Philadelphia that you were interviewing in? Really different. I mean, at that point, there was the, no one could build a building taller than Billy Penn's hat. So it was like a unremarkable, flat, stunted skyline. It's kind of dirty and very urban. I mean, we were living in LA and it's sunny and, you know, we were right near Griffith Park. And at the same time, both my wife and I were are East Coasters, and we both grew up and lived in New York City. And it was, even though we didn't know Philadelphia, it felt like a real city. You could walk, you didn't, you could take public transportation, you didn't have to worry about a car. And there were, you know, there were some cool restaurants, although the restaurant renaissance hadn't really happened. It was just beginning to happen. The very first piece I had published in the Inquirer was a concert review of Keith Jarrett at the Academy of Music. And I still felt really connected to the music, both jazz and pop and rock and stuff like that. So I was very happy sort of juggling between covering music, covering movies, talking to authors. At the time, Desmond Ryan was the the main film critic, but there was way too much to do for one critic to cover. So I just sort of said, you know, if there's some schlocky B movie or horror movie that you don't want to do, I'd be happy to write a review of it. So I started doing that, and uh, you know, and the more I did that, the more I liked it and the more I felt comfortable doing that. So over the years, I just, you know, veered more towards covering film than covering music or, or yeah. other art. And what was it about covering film that was so preferable? I think it just, it reconnected me to the love I had for movies from my childhood days. And uh, there was a lot going on in films in the late 70s and then in the 80s when I came here to Philadelphia, that was exciting. The Ritz theaters were here. When we first moved here, there were only three screens. Then quickly there were five. And you know, by the 90s, there was 12 wow. art house screens within walking distance to where I live. You know, So it's like nirvana for moviegoers. Yeah. 
Do you think that the word critic has a negative connotation to it? It does for some people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole idea of criticism for some people, you know, they question who's this guy that he can like, you know, pontificate about movies or books or whatever. And over the years, putting myself out there in print and then online every week, the people that tend to respond to that in email form or phone call form usually have something negative to say. And so, <laughs> so I got a lot of flack from people like questioning my judgment, my take on a film or whatever. So you just have to sort of gird yourself for that and have some sense of confidence about your own opinions and be able to articulate them in a way that people will get. I probably just unthinkingly threw myself at it. <laughs> yeah, you just didn't have a choice. You just had right, to do it. Right, <laughs> So you were the Philadelphia Inquirer's film critic for quite a long time, right? 1992 to 2016, is Yeah, until right? I retired, yeah. My goodness. So would you say that there was a time where you felt Philadelphia sort of embrace your opinion more as time went on? Um, or did they ever embrace it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I definitely had people would talk to me at, about movies and thank me for championing a film that they might not otherwise have seen. It's a, you know, it's a mixed bag. It's a dialogue with the public. And so there's good feedback and, you know, negative feedback too. I should say that for not all of that time was I the sole film critic. Um, at one point when newspapers were still thriving, there were three of us. Desmond was still there, Carrie Ricky, my colleague, and uh, myself. How did Philadelphia's relationship to film change over those years? In terms of film production in Philadelphia, there have been times when there's been a lot going happening here, and that's really exciting. And then there have been years where very few shows or films have been shot, produced yeah. in Philadelphia. I feel like this year has been particularly active. Yeah. <laughs> Every week yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm hearing about celebrities and blocks are shut down mm -hmm. because of, of filming. Yeah, Jason Siegel and... Yeah. Andre 3000 and Sally Field and Richard E. Grant are all here doing this series that Jason Siegel created. I can't wait to see it. You know, you can't help but see that they're shooting all over town. So a couple of times they've been in Washington Square and they were shooting a big protest scene on Walnut Street in front of the Curtis Center. And um, Idris Elba is here shooting right. a film. Last Christmas, so I'm in a singing club and we were, a, a few of the guys in the singing club came to the clubhouse to decorate. And I walked down the street to go get everybody a pizza. I was stopped because M. Night Shyamalan was filming his forthcoming TV show. <laughs> I'm sitting there with this pizza and the crew is all looking at it because you can smell the pizza. They're all looking at it. And then after I was sitting there for like a solid 10, 15 minutes and I wasn't complaining because, you know, the guys were back at the club decorating and I was right behind M. Night Shyamalan. Like I was right behind his director's chair and it took me like five minutes to realize that. And then one of the, like they said cut and then one of the assistants said, all right, all right, all right, and moved everyone out of the way, including M. Night, so that I could walk through with my pizza. They're like, get this man home with his pizza. Yeah, and of course, the Rocky films and, yeah. and Creed. I mean, there's. I love the way Philadelphia is, is shot and presents itself in Creed. I think they really captured the new spirit of Philadelphia. I'm curious what you think about what the internet has done, both for movie consumption and, I guess, opinion sharing, right? Like, so... You know, now anybody can watch pretty much any movie at any time and anybody can be a critic mm -hmm. because anybody can put their pin on the internet. In some ways, it's democratized things. I mean, it's great that everybody has a voice and, every, you know, people can put their opinions out there and people can like it, not like it, tweet it, yeah. put it on Facebook. So there's that aspect of it, which I think is really good. I think it has delegitimized criticism to some extent in some people's eyes 
if everybody is a critic and everybody can be a critic, then why is so-and-so who's writing for the Boston Globe or Miami Herald any better or worse than... Do you think that their opinion is... I think... I think it depends on the person. I think it's Dana Stevens, for instance, who's the film critic at Slate, she started off with a blog. She just thought she would go to movies and write about them. And people saw her, what she was posting, and her writing was brilliant. Her observations were brilliant. So she was offered like a freelance film critic gig with the New York Times. So I think that's good. But it does create a lot of noise. Yeah. And, and there's so much out there and so much information, it's impossible to yeah. get it all. Coming up, you'll hear how Stephen went from publishing columns and articles to publishing books and how paying attention to the musicians and actors he's written about has brought an entirely new dimension to his career. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Philly Who with Stephen Ray. All right, so we're going to backtrack a bit. Before he was at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Stephen Ray was, if you remember, a writer for Island Records. What do you do when you're a staff writer at a record label? You make press kits. A lot of them. Back in the day before the internet, press kits were tangible. You could hold them in your hands and leaf through the glossy photographs. And Stephen was drawn to these photographs. So he started collecting them. And I just started putting aside, just for, you know, to have in my desk drawer or to put up on a bulletin board, photographs that I liked. Then when I started writing about film, I would be getting press kits from the studios. I would take the picture of Vanessa Redgrave from that press kit and keep it. So, but it wasn't anything, I wasn't thinking of like starting a collection or anything like that. A friend of mine, Michael Oakes, eventually sold his photo collection to Getty Images. He had a bungalow in Venice, the entire basement of which was files of photographs. And so I, I did not go that direction at all and never even thought of the idea of doing that. But I did put a few photos in the drawers of the year. And then I think when I started seriously collecting photographs, well, I'm, I'm a passionate cyclist. I, I ride my bike everywhere. I've been riding since I was a kid in New York. And Philadelphia, one of the things about Philadelphia is it's a great cycling city and it's getting better as more bike lanes are being developed and everything. But I stumbled on a photo of Glenn Ford and Rita Hayworth on this incredibly beautiful French-built um, tandem bicycle. And it was from a 1940 film. Oh, The Lady in Question is the name of the film. And it's a gorgeous photo. It's set in Paris, even though it was shot in Hollywood. And one of the characters has a bike shop. And so they imported for the production some really beautiful drop-dead hand-built French bicycles. And it's this great photo of these two iconic Hollywood stars from the 1940s, Glenn Ford and Rita Hayworth, on this bike. And I had to have that photo. And that started me off on collecting photos of movie stars on bikes. Then I started a Tumblr blog. And then I was lucky enough to get a book deal to publish um, Hollywood Rides a Bike, Cycling with the Stars. And that set me off. And now I have almost 2,000 original prints from the studios of Wow. movie stars on bikes. And I keep posting new ones a couple of times a week. What's your audience like? Like, What was the response when you launched the Tumblr? It was really surprisingly, um, like all of a sudden, there were like lots and lots of people following. And, and it's continued to be a mix of like cycling fanatics and movie people. Yeah. And, you know, and then there are some people like me where both of those passions are really yeah. strong. Started off as a hobby and now it's become an obsession. Yeah. Most of my 
archival collection is of stars on bikes, but I have hundreds of other photos too. But I, I figured, okay, I love bikes. I love movies. I love coffee. Are there photographs of movie stars having coffee that are more than just, you know, Frank Sinatra holding a mug up to his face? And it turns out, yes, there are all these incredibly wonderful shots of like stills from films. Like I have Michael Caine grinding beans from the Ipcris file. It's the opening sequence of the credit sequence of the film where he's making himself a cup of coffee in the morning. And he goes through the whole process of pouring the beans into the grinder. Scenes from movies where romantic comedies where a couple are sitting at a diner counter having cups of coffee or candid shots of actors or actresses at home reading the paper and having coffee. And so I got a publisher to go for that. Yeah. So I've interviewed, I don't know, hundreds of actors and actresses and filmmakers now probably. And oftentimes it's in the context of a press junket where they're doing like a half hour interview blocked out with somebody from the New York Daily News, somebody from the LA Times, somebody from Entertainment Tonight. And it's really hard to break through and connect and get them to get off speech. But I had a long discussion with Meryl Streep when she was promoting Dancing at Lanessa. It's set in Ireland in the early part of the 20th century. And there are scenes in the film where she's riding a bike with a Brooks leather saddle. And so in the middle of this like 20 minutes that I had allotted to speak to the great Meryl Streep, at least half of it was a discussion of riding a vintage bike in Ireland and the the pros and cons of a Brooks leather saddle. It wasn't great for the story and because I couldn't put any of that really in the story, but it was great for me. And oh my gosh. I feel like I had a real connection there with Meryl Streep. Cloud nine. <laughs> Get to talk about your like something specific, right? That dig right. deep in your into your hobby with somebody like that. That's amazing. And then I've had like really memorable interviews with Bill Murray at the Toronto Film Festival where he just kind of went off complaining about how, and complaining in a kind of genial way, not like in a kind of angry or yeah. you know cranky way about the expectations that people have of him that he's never met, he's never spoken to him. And then people come up to him all the time and ask him favors like, could you sign this book for my mother or you know selfies and um, Letter, my mother is sick. Could you write her a letter? And you know, it's not what he wants to do. And he's he explained that in a really kind of funny, but frank way, and that was cool. Can't imagine what that's like. Some people handle it better than others, and then there, you know, there are some artists in any form, you know, deeply insecure right. inside, like a lot of people are, and they need the constant affirmation. So there's some part of a lot of actors' lives where they maybe resent. You know, like if they're sitting in a restaurant and they want to be left alone and someone comes up to them and says, excuse me, are you so-and-so? I really admire your work. But at the same time, if people weren't doing that, they'd probably like, you know, what's happened to my career? Why why isn't anybody recognizing me? Or <laughs> So it's impossible to know right. <laughs> which mood they're in. <laughs> right, right. It's very visible. What would you say is a common misconception about you? It's a classic. And you probably have experienced this being in sound journalism and doing podcasts that people have a mental image from a voice. And that was something like, a, you know, you picture DJs that you grew up listening to. Yeah. And then you're shocked when you meet them. And I think maybe from my writing in the days before you could Google a person's face, yeah. maybe people were a little bit surprised. They had an expectation of what I might look like. Yeah. I've gotten a couple of Ubers where the person knew who I was. Oh, cool. Um, which is wild to me. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and then I would leave the Uber thinking like, I wonder like, 
if I like lived up or like what? Like if I if <laughs> right or this, if you let him down, right? Or did let this her ride down. change him, his or her perception of me? You know, it's it's so funny. Right. What what is that picture that they have? I, yeah, that's that's a good point. Later this month, Stephen will be doing a bunch of events and book signings in and around Philadelphia. So if you'd like to meet him, you can check out the details in the show notes. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Here is a very special thanks to Philly Who's patrons, Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, Ryan Fitzgerald, and Matt Glick. If you'd like to join them in supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Philly Who. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio powered by CIC and was hosted and produced by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi and Jackson Neal, editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Until next time. <laughs>